Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Courage is armor a blind man wears. That calloused scar of outlived despairs. Courage is fear said its prayers. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope, I trust that you're uh, doing well today. My name is Devin. I'm the lead pastor here at Brian. And whether you're here in the building or joining us online, I want to say welcome. Now, I'm trying to learn the culture down here. So this is my first... Fourth of July weekend ever in America. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm trying to make the best of it, put my best foot forward. So you'll notice that today I'm sporting red, white, and blue. Some of you are like, wait a second, I see two, but there's one I'm missing. See, you got to look really good, really closely, and you'll see that there's, there's red in here. Right? So I got red. I got the white shoes, of course, because that's the only thing I have. And blue. So there you go, feeling patriotic, I suppose. But let me start today with a very light, just easy, open, ice-breaking question. What is your greatest fear? Well, I know in one sense that's not light, because that reveals something about us. But I was reading this week about a 2021 study that the the Chapman University did, where they surveyed thousands of Americans and asked them what their greatest fears were. They provided a list of, I believe, 95 specific fears and asked participants to rate them if they were very afraid or, like, utterly afraid of it. And so in the end, they assembled the data, and they came up with a top 10. Let me give you the top 10. Maybe a few of these will resonate with you or stick out with you. Here's number 10, the greatest fears that Americans have. Number 10, biological warfare. Number nine, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. Number eight, economic and financial collapse. Number seven, not having enough money for the future. Number six, pollution of drinking water. Number five, another world war. Number four, people I love dying. Number three, nuclear war, nuclear weapons. Number two, people I love becoming seriously ill. And the number one fear as listed by participants in the, in the study was this, corrupt government officials. Now I have... You know, I understand and sympathize and would feel many of those for sure. But perhaps my greatest fear is a mild form of musophobia. Now, 
this is kind of vulnerable for me, but musophobia is the irrational fear of mice. Okay, now here's the thing. Let me explain it. I would say mild because I'm not actually afraid of a mouse. I am petrified of being startled and scared by a mouse. There's a big difference. <laughs> right? So, because it never works out well because, uh, you know, I, I played sports. I consider myself, you know, I got quick reflexes. I'm pretty agile. And you can see all of that on display if a mouse runs out in front of me. And if I happen to push my wife to get away, that's just... She understands, but I tell you this, I can get them out of the trap. When they're in there, I can do it. Now, mind you, I do gag the entire time, but I have to show my wife that I'm a real man. So I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it, dry heaves or not. But regardless of how strong you are, regardless of how competent you may be in your field, it doesn't matter how well put together you are, Every single one of us wrestle with fear. It could be something like the top 10 list here. Maybe for you it's something small. You don't like spiders or whatnot. But more than likely, some of the fears that walk beside us day in and day out that seem to hound us have to do with our identity, about being vulnerable, about being exposed and seen for who we truly are. Every one of us will wrestle with fear at one point or another. And today as we continue on this study on the life of Elijah, we have seen so far that this is a man of courage, that he has done some incredible things. And yet we read in the book of James in the New Testament that Elijah was just like you and just like me. He wasn't some superstar who was beyond the temptation of giving into despair or hopelessness or fear. He didn't walk around with a chest full of courage. He wrestled and he struggled. And what we're going to see today is that in our passage, God comes to Elijah at a low point. When Elijah seems to have forgotten all that God has done, And even here, when Elijah ought to know better, should have remembered, even here, God speaks with gentleness to Elijah. We see how God responds to those who are struggling, who are fearful, and who have forgotten his power and his might. Now, I should also mention on the front end here that because Elijah's journey takes such a dark turn, he eventually gets to the place where he he asks God for death. And so for a brief part in our time today, I'm going to talk about the area of suicide. It's in our text, and it's unfortunately... A reality today. Now, I want to be sensitive to this, absolutely, but I want to offer you the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ, even for something as tragic as this. And if you're here, I want to state it on the front end of our time today, that if you are here and this is a struggle of yours, 
and these thoughts keep coming to mind. If you're here and you have been touched by this, hurt, I want to challenge you, to encourage you, and to invite you to speak with someone. But today, before you leave, that you talk to one of our pastors, one of our elders, so that we can get you connected to a a qualified professional who can guide you and walk with you so that we can encourage you and support you in this. I will make that abundantly clear when we speak about it, and I wanted to double up and touch on that right here at the beginning of our time together. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to have you stand and read with me Elijah, Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 19, about Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 19, this is a fascinating account, and it comes from, it comes on the heels of Elijah's greatest victory. Let me unpack for you the story of Elijah, because maybe you're just jumping in here new and you haven't heard the rest of the sermons. Maybe you're here, you've been tracking with us, but heaven forbid, you just seem to forget everything that I say. It happens. So let's review a little bit. In the Old Testament, God sends prophets. He sends these prophets to teach his people, to call his people to repentance, to turn away from these idols, these false teachers, back into covenant faithfulness. One such prophet is Elijah. So Elijah bursts onto the scene and he confronts an evil king in Israel, King Ahab. And he says to King Ahab, there's going to be no rain, there's going to be no dew until I say so. So obviously then comes a drought, then comes a famine. And God whisks Elijah away. He goes into the wilderness for a season. He goes up to Sidon for a season, and all the while in his journey, God is working in Elijah. God is stretching him. God is growing him. And eventually this battle for the soul of the nation culminates in a showdown on Mount Carmel. And Elijah sets the scene. He says this, 450 prophets of Baal against me. You have an altar. You have a sacrifice. I have an altar. I have a sacrifice. We will both pray in the God that answers by fire. That's the God that Israel should worship. So the prophets of Baal start. They cry out. They shout out. They cut themselves with swords, trying to gain the ear of their false God. But Elijah points it out. There's no one there. No one hears. When it's Elijah's turn, he asks them to soak his altar in sacrifice until it is dripping wet. He says a simple prayer and fire falls from heaven. Consumes everything to ash. God has made his power and his authority known, and he has used this man of courage named Elijah. Coming off the heels of this victory, we begin our study in chapter 19. Now, if you are able, I want to invite you to stand with me as I read verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. Ahab, that is the evil king, told Jezebel, that's his evil wife, 
all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of those, one of them by this time tomorrow. She is threatening him here, claiming that she is coming to kill him. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough. I've had enough. O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. So coming off the heels of this incredible victory, Elijah, he has had showdowns and encounters with Ahab before. And he has stood firm with resolve and with courage. And yet, when he hears that that Jezebel is after him, he's overcome with fear. He was a smart guy. He had heard and had seen what Jezebel had done to God's prophets. You can read about this in chapter 18, verses 4 and 13. How Jezebel captured the prophets of God and killed them. She had blood on her hands. And when Elijah hears that she is after him, he runs, he flees. And he goes down to Beersheba, 120 miles south of Mount Carmel. Beersheba is essentially as far south as you can go and still be in Israel. What's interesting is that throughout Elijah's life, It's the word of God that comes to him, the word of the Lord that comes to him that directs his steps. So the word of God comes and says to Elijah, go up here. So he he obeys. The word of the Lord comes and says to Elijah, I want you to go to Sidon. So he obeys. The word of the Lord comes, says, Elijah, I want you to go here. I want you to go there. And Elijah obeys. But here in this text, there is no mention of the word of God. There is no mention of the word of the Lord coming to him to to direct him. He has not consulted God. He has not asked God. He is responding here with fear. So rather than taking a breath and waiting on God, he takes matters into his own hands and he simply flees. Fear is a natural, almost primal, emotion. And in one sense is warranted. It fits. It is the acknowledgement that despite how much control you feel like you have in your life, it is all an illusion. 
What is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away, the Bible tells us. You may be strong and competent and financially secure, but you are not guaranteed another breath. And so the natural human reaction is fear. And Elijah here is overcome. He is given into fear, coming off the heels of such a great victory where he sees the power of God come down. Here he has forgotten all about it. He hears that Jezebel is after him, so he runs as far away as he can get. And because of this fear, because of this discouragement, he begins to slide into deeper and deeper discouragement until he gets to the point when he speaks to God. And he says this, take away my life. The discouragement, the hopelessness, the fear is so great that he contemplates suicide. I know that this is a sensitive and painful topic. It does appear a number of times in Scripture. And so I think that it's important that I address that today and that we can anchor ourselves in the hope of Christ. There are at least seven instances in the Bible of individuals taking their own life. There are more who have contemplated it. You think of Elijah here or Jonah the prophet in Jonah chapter 4. But seven instances of those who took their life. In Judges 9, there's a man named Abimelech who is wounded in battle, but he's wounded by a woman and he doesn't want his legacy to be that he was killed by a woman. So he says to his armor bearer, kill me. And he commands his armor bearer to kill him. Samson, big strong Samson, is brought into captivity and he eventually destroys the place where the people are are partying and are reveling. Sure, his death was in one sense sacrificial and and it was used by God, but he died from his own actions knowingly. Saul and his armor bearer. Saul, King Saul, the first king that Israel ever had. He learns that his troops are defeated, that his sons are dead, so he turns to his armor bearer and says, kill me. And the man won't, so he falls on his own sword, and then the armor bearer in turn does the same. Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17 hung himself. Zimri set the royal palace on fire and locked himself inside. And then in the New Testament we read about Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, and in so suffered with such great... I don't know if you would call it guilt or shame or some kind of regret that he took his own life. If you have been touched by this in any way, you'll know how utterly heartbreaking it is. Because oftentimes we're left with so many questions. And if you are here and you have experienced loss in this way, I want you to know that we are here for you. 
And whatever that means, walking beside you, connecting you into grief, share, connecting you to a a qualified therapist who would be able to walk with you through this. If this just means praying for you and supporting you in this journey, we are here for you. And oftentimes for those of us who are left, it, it raises another significant, important, and deeply personal question. And it's this. Can someone who takes their own life still go to heaven? You see, in Catholic theology up until recently, the answer was unequivocally no. That it was a mortal sin and beyond forgiveness because you could not forget, forgive or ask for forgiveness at that point. Now, our authority is, is based on Scripture, and so it's important that we think deeply about this important and significant question. You see, what the Bible makes abundantly clear is that salvation, that eternal life is possible through and because of Jesus and Jesus alone. So what this means is that when a person trusts in Jesus in his death on the cross for their sins, his resurrection from the dead for their life, they are absolved, forgiven, that their sin has been atoned for, that it is finished. And this applies to sins past. This applies to sins present. And this applies to sin in the future. The message of the gospel is that you are saved, not because you make it to the end and you're a really good little boy or girl. But you are saved on that final day because you belong to Jesus. That you have been purchased by him through his blood. That you belong to to him. This is exactly what Paul the Apostle talks about in Romans chapter 8. He says these words, I am sure, I know this, I am confident of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the hope of the gospel. Now listen to me. The reality is that even if you have been forgiven by Jesus, even if you are a new creation in Christ, you still struggle. And your struggle is often different than mine. And my struggle may be different than yours. We all wrestle with the flesh. The sinful remnants of our old self. Add to that that we live in a broken and fallen world where bodies and brains can grow sick, where chemicals that our brains require can fail to produce. Add into that trauma and all the mental health struggles. And it is possible for a genuine believer in a moment of confusion clouded by mental health to take their own life. But at the same time, believers in Christ 
have been given the Spirit of God to indwell us and to give us hope. And so suicide is always a tragic and terrible reality. If you or someone you know are struggling in this way with suicidal ideations and thoughts, there is help. And listen to me very carefully. There is hope. None of us can see the battle being waged in your mind, the war being fought in your brain. And I want to encourage you and invite you before you even leave here today to speak to someone, one of our pastors, one of our elders, so that we can encourage you and and walk with you through this, so that we can connect you to a professional who can help you in this. I mean, Elijah's journey here is so painful to watch. And maybe your battle with with fear or hopelessness is, is different than this. But regardless, there's something significant here that we see as, as Elijah, as God is seeking to encourage Elijah, Elijah to strengthen him. You see, Elijah has, is on the run. He is weary, he is tired, and he has lost hope. So what does God do to strengthen him? Well, God allows him to take a nap, and then he feeds him. Sometimes, the most spiritual thing that you can do is take a nap. I mean, right here, Elijah, he he calls out to God. He is honest with God about where he's at. But then he lies down and he sleeps, and an angel comes, touches him, and says, get up and eat. He eats this food that the angel provides. Then he lies down, sleeps. The angel wakes him up again. Arise and eat. And he eats again. I want you to think about how scandalous and how incredible this is. Elijah has been used by God in the war over the heart of this nation. God is using him in powerful and profound ways. God is sovereign and in control of human history. God is waging war against the false gods of Israel, claiming his rightful place as the sole object of worship. And yet, in all of this, he is overtly concerned that Elijah has all he needs to eat. Kind of like when you go to grandma's house, right? Have you had enough to eat, sweetie? And you're like, grandma, grandma, you got to stop. This is a problem. Are we expecting company? What is this? Why does grandma feed you so much food? Because she loves you. God fed Elijah through the provision that the ravens brought. God fed Elijah through the widow of Zarephath, through the flour and the oil that did not run out. Here, God has an angel deliver food to Elijah. I think God is the one that we should tip for Uber Eats or DoorDash. It's all his invention. God delivers this. He brings it to him. The cosmic, glorious, infinite God understands our human weakness and our need and dependence on food. So he cares enough to stoop down low and say, Elijah, you need to eat something. 
Don't miss the, there is no God in the ancient world. There is no religion today that can offer you a God like this, who is so incredibly holy and glorious and magnificent and yet cares enough about the everyday struggles that you and I have. This is the God of the Bible. Church, it's okay to rest. You're not a machine of perpetual motion. You are a finite created being, created to be dependent on your maker. God set the pattern of rest for us. He made the world in six days. He rested on the seventh, not because he was weary, spent, he didn't put his feet up. And so, okay, I'm going to take a nap. No, we read in Isaiah 40, 28, that he neither sleeps nor grows weary. But he rested on the seventh day to set the pattern for you and I. He rested on the seventh day to enjoy his creative genius and work. God rested on the seventh day. When we get to the life of Christ in the New Testament, God himself come down in the flesh. We see that he came and he rested. I mean, think about this. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came on this incredible, earth-shattering, cosmic, changing reality. He came on this mission, and yet, he still took time to rest. In John chapter 4, we're told that he was weary. In Mark chapter 8, he's asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. If God set the pattern for rest, if Jesus Christ our Lord required rest, then you and I need rest. You see, we are called to have courage. We are called to stand firm. We are called to hold the line, and yet we cannot do it apart from seasons of rest and rejuvenation, of being strengthened again. And here, Elijah needs that. He has been fighting for a while now. He's been on the run for a while now. He's been under a lot of stress and pressure. And God strengthens him by giving him rest and giving him food. Hear the words of our incredible Savior. For those of you who are tired, Those of you who have been standing firm and you're not sure how much longer you can hold, hear the words of Jesus. Come. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God wants to strengthen Elijah here. And if you are going to regain your strength for the next chapter that God has for you, you're going to need to rest and to rest well. Now, I'm not talking about 
canceling your plans and watching Netflix for six hours. I'm not talking about playing Call of Duty till 3 a.m. and saying, oh, it was a night off, that's rest. I'm not talking about being on social media for four hours, staring at other people's lives, thinking about how much better their life is than yours. That's not rest. All that does is pause time. Whatever emotional state you were in before, you'll be in exactly later, but you'll get less sleep. So instead of all of that, go for a walk in creation. Read a great book. Pray and meditate on God's word without rush. Find some friends that you can be with that are life-giving, that will encourage you in the gospel. Whatever it is and however it is that God has created you to find your rest most fully, rest in him. God first strengthens the fearful. But he's not done with Elijah because he has an important lesson to teach him. And it's a lesson that you and I need today. I'm going to read for you the next section, but on the front end of that, I want to give you the lesson that God's going to teach him here. You see, God, church, God is both great and glorious. Praise God. But he is also gentle. God is great and glorious beyond anything we could ever imagine. And yet, that great and glorious God is gentle. And he comes and he speaks to us in gentleness. Let's read the text. This is from 1 Kings 19. This is verse 9. And there it says, he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenants. They have thrown down your altars and they have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek to take my life away. And God replies, and he said to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. A gentle word. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, there came a voice to him that said, yet again, Elijah, what are you doing here? You and I need to remember both. That God is great and glorious. He has all power and all authority. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is the unrivaled and unchallenged king of all creation. That is our God. And so God comes to Elijah, and Elijah has forgotten. So he comes and he brings a wind. 
and the wind is powerful and it shakes the mountain and is busting up stone and rock. This is God. He is great and he is glorious. Do you see that, Elijah? Then comes an earthquake. God in his power and majesty causes the very plates of the earth to rub in friction, causing this incredible earthquake. God is saying to Elijah, do you see? I am great and I am glorious. Then the fire comes, the same kind of fire that fell on Mount Carmel. This fire burns so brightly and God is not in the fire, but he wants Elijah to know, I am great and I am glorious. And then God speaks in a low or thin or gentle whisper that God is great and he is glorious. But praise God, he is also gentle. If your God is one or the other, you're going to be with you're going to be in for a real difficult season. Because if God is merely great and glorious, but he is not gentle, then he is a distant but powerful deity that you will fear and you will never repent to him. You will never draw near to him. When you get discouraged like Elijah, you won't run to him for strength. Not until you can fix things just enough to say, are are you pleased now? If God is merely gentle, well, he's just going to encourage you to keep trying to stand firm, keep trying to walk in courage, but he has no power or authority to make a difference. But when your heart gets, when your eyes see that he is great and glorious and gentle, man, you can persevere. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you fall down. He is gentle and gracious. He will come to strengthen you, to encourage you, and to lead you on. It means you never have to lose hope because he is great and he is glorious. The final message that God has for Elijah here is to not give up. In verse 15, after speaking to Elijah in this gentle whisper, he says to Elijah, go. Go on the way to Damascus. Despite your fear, despite your cowardice, despite your struggles and your hopelessness and your despair, I'm not done with you. I haven't given up on you, Elijah. I am great and glorious. I can strengthen you. I am gentle. I can encourage you. And this is our God. This is who he is. And we see this when we read the Gospels. We see this beautifully displayed in Christ himself. You think about, think about Jesus with his disciples. He is crucified and they scatter deny him, run, they leave him. And after his resurrection from the dead, this triumphant king seeks out those who left him. And his word to them is this, peace. He seeks out his disciples who abandon him to speak to them with gentleness. He is great and he is glorious and he is gentle. We see that displayed in the incarnation that the great and glorious God who spoke all things into existence was willing to humble himself and take the form of a servant, take the form of a man 
we see that in his crucifixion. He had the authority and the power to put an end to it at any point. He is great. He is glorious. He could have ended it, and yet he chose to lay his life down because he is a gentle and caring and gracious Savior. And we see that even now in the gospel. That he is great and he is glorious. And right now in this moment, he is gently speaking and calling on you to follow him. Because maybe you're here and you have tried so many different ways to drown out that gentle voice saying there's got to be more to life than this. Saying you've tried that before and it doesn't lead to true joy. Saying you've got to figure this thing out. God is great and glorious and he is gentle. And so he extends to you this soft whisper saying, follow me. Turn to me. Put your trust in me and I can forgive you of your sin and grant you eternal life with me. God is great and glorious. He is gentle. The Jesus of our Bibles, the living word is great and glorious. He is gentle. And he is speaking to you even now gently. But I want you to hear me very carefully. That he will not speak gently forever. That the next time that we as humanity hear his voice, it will not be with a soft whisper. It will be with a shout. As he returns, and the period of of grace and of gentleness to those of you who are refusing to believe is ended. If you refuse his gentleness now, you will suffer under his justice then. So hear his voice. Put your trust in him today. Put your faith in him. Believe in him. Say yes to his gentle voice. In a mixed up world gone mad, you and I need courage. But our courage isn't isn't sufficient in and of itself. We will falter, we will fail. What we need in those seasons is to be strengthened by the Lord, to rest in Him. What we need in those seasons is to be encouraged by Him, to allow our hearts and minds to remember always that He is great and glorious. He can do all things. And yet He is gentle. He is gracious. He cares about you. If you're going to stand firm, if you're going to hold the line, if you're going to stand up for what's right, you need to keep this in mind, that he is great and glorious, and he's gentle. My hope and my prayer is that you will stand firm in the knowledge of who Christ truly is. So let me pray to that end. Jesus, there are probably people here, I have no doubt, who don't yet know you, who have heard your voice in the past but have ignored it. And you, in grace, continue. 
Open their eyes to salvation, I pray. Help them to have the courage to come and find a pastor or an elder and say, I want that forgiveness. I want that salvation. Tell me about Jesus. Father, for those who are here who are struggling with with mental health, with these kinds of thoughts that I've talked about today, would you give them just hope? Hope in you, Jesus. Would you help us as a church community to surround them, encourage them, and to lend hope to them? Jesus, I thank you that you are great and glorious. You are worthy of our praise, of our worship, of our very lives. And I thank you that you are also gentle and compassionate and gracious because we have no hope of standing firm, of walking with courage, apart from you. We love you, and we ask this in your great and glorious name. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at Berean.com. MN.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.